Hi, my name is Phil Calvert, and thanks so much for joining me again today for today's Advisor Lives podcast. We're going to get straight into it. Today, my guest is Daniel Priestley. Now, Daniel is an entrepreneur, um, a business influencer, I would describe him, and he is the archetypal arrived in the UK with a credit card, a piece of string, and a suitcase, and a year later, he's got a turnover of a million pounds. Um, which is absolutely fantastic, and I'm sure there's a lot we can learn. Now, Daniel has a skill of being able to communicate common sense business concepts in a way that kind of gets people's attention and really motivates them to actually do something about it. I think one of the problems with this wonderful thing that we have called the internet is there's just so much information coming at us all the time, but how much of it do we actually act on? Um, Daniel's going to talk about a couple of things today, um, and generally speaking, what he says, I act on. I even wrote a book based on something we're going to talk about that uh, that Daniel is is really pioneering at the moment. So, warm welcome, Daniel. Great to see you. How are you? Thank you very much for having me on on the podcast. Really, no, it's great really to see glad. You. Thank you. So, this 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 concept it sounds very dreamlike, arriving in the UK with nothing in your pocket apart from a credit card. Just give us a bit of background <laughs> as to what what was that all about. Well, it's a great story. Uh, I did arrive with a suitcase and a credit card and I'd never been above the equator. And we, I think in the first, maybe it was six months, we had done 850,000 pounds worth of revenue and we're up around 2 million uh, by the end of year one. Um, and yeah, it was standing start and it was knowing nobody in London. So that that absolutely was true. The backstory to that is probably adds a little bit of depth, which is that I had actually built a successful company in Australia um, before the age of 25. Uh, I started a company at 21. It got to about 11 million in revenue, $11 million Aussie dollars in sales um, uh, prior to age 25. I got out of that business at 25. I exited, came to came to London when I was looking for my next thing, my next move. Um, I saw a successful business model in Australia and Singapore, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go visit Europe and and kind of hang out in the UK for two years, and I'll just run a business while I'm there and have fun doing a little business uh, campaign and launch. Um, and obviously, that was 15 years ago. So, yeah, yeah. so. Uh, Three children later, and meeting my wife, and um, and setting up multiple businesses. Uh, today, we do have an office ago, though in Sydney and in Toronto. So we've, I've kind of infiltrated back the other way, but I live in London. Yeah, fantastic. So um, we've got we've got to bring up uh, COVID. Um, how have you changed the way you work? And I know that's the most obvious of questions to ask, but. Fundamentally, there are huge shifts going on that were taking place anyway, but I get the feeling of, of being accelerated. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I used to say that we run the best business accelerator in the world, but I think COVID is the best business accelerator in the world. It's done a better job than we could have ever done um, of accelerating business trends. So look, you know, for us, here's here's the number one trend that, that has changed for us. We Pre-COVID, we used to think cities. Today, we think time zones. So the truth is I don't really have a London, Sydney and Toronto office. I have a Umea, Asia Pacific and America's office. And actually each one of those offices is now running um, the entire time zone. Prior to COVID, I had eight cities that we were up and running 
and we had offices and footprint and we thought of those as independent individual cities around the world that we'd set up a, an office in. Um, today, we, we just don't even see the point in that. We just simply run the business on the time zone. Our London office is working with clients in South Africa, Nigeria, Dubai, Norway, uh, um, Iceland. Is it Iceland or Greenland? It's one of those. Uh, <laughs> some remote parts of Northern Scotland. Um, we've got uh, customers in Germany, in um, Netherlands, right? So we're just, you know, coordinating and collaborating on the time zone um, because it's digital. Mm. And uh, and what happened is everyone just suddenly had to go digital. So whereas previously you had to kind of go and meet people and put on the events and run the run the rooms, uh, everyone actually prefers now to get onto the digital um, platform and just run it digitally. And I don't think that's ever going to go back. I think that um, people like kind of tuning in for the things that they want to tune in for. They like it being short, sharp and punchy. I don't think anyone actually wants to get on trains and go into London anymore. Sure. Um, and also us as a business, we don't want to cut ourselves off from the world anymore. So now that we've actually figured out how to do all of these clever things, we don't want to go back to the way things were either. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, our audience for this is predominantly financial planners, financial advisors, uh, towards the quality end, end of the market. And yet there are still quite a few financial advisors in the UK who still say financial advice can only be done face-to-face. Um, and there are some who have crossed their arms and almost sort of denying the fact that, that we have moved to a digital place. Do you have a, a message for, for, for them? I, I, well, I'm, for starters, congratulations on listening to podcasts. That's a, <laughs> that's a good step in the right direction uh, if you're listening to this. But, look, if you're working for a company that has adopted the let's wait till things go back, um, you know, you need to go find another job. Uh, because, of course, financial planning can be done. If you break it down to its steps, rapport building, you know, I've done uh, in since COVID, I've bought and sold companies with people I've never met uh, physically. I've done uh, six-figure deals, lots of six-figure deals uh, with people I've never physically met. All of that has involved rapport. It's all, all involved, um, you know, doing, uh, you know, sharing of information, uh, getting on the same page, getting around the same side of the table with people, metaphorically, digitally speaking, looking people in the eyes, <laughs> right? Yeah. All of that I've had to do uh, on Zoom. Um, but it's all worked. It's all happened. Uh, so, you know, you're going to be in a very difficult position when the other financial planners in the marketplace get very good and get better and better and better at um, doing the digital thing. But also think about it from the customer's point of view, Right. So, you know, you talk, to a, you talk to a customer, most people, now my, my father-in-law is in his late 80s. He is just loving Zoom. He is getting himself into all sorts of meetings. The other day he attended a hydrogen conference um, in, in Germany. Um, he loved it. He would have never been able to get on the plane and go over to that conference. Um, but now that the whole thing is being held on Zoom, he was just, he, he enrolled on it. He took notes all day. He, he, you know, he was just so thrilled to be taking part in that high-level thought leadership because um, his passion is hydrogen and energy. Okay. And, you know, he connected with the speakers. He set himself up a Twitter account so he could connect with certain people, um, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Now, I can tell you 
his whole background, his his business for forty years was paint equipment, um, painting equipment, wholesale and uh, high end painting equipment that he would uh, bring in from around the world and sell. You know, he's not a he's not a tech guy. He's not a guy who you know who uh, was going to end up on Zoom all the time. But I'm telling you, this you know, he's all over this. And yeah. if you gave him the choice now between talking to a top financial planner on Zoom or having someone come around to his house, I can tell you he he's he's not really a big fan of people coming around to the house anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, he also doesn't really want to go around to someone else's place. Uh, or office. He he is very, very comfortable meeting people in Zoom and actually it's a really great way for him to connect with people, to learn from people without having to have someone in his house or without him having to go out of the house. Yeah, um, yeah. I've, I've always had this theory that there are a lot of people who know they need professional financial planning but don't want to do that um, but have realized have since seeing some financial advisors actually putting onto LinkedIn now offering online advice have gone yippee. Um, and I've seen financial advisors actually say to me, uh, I, I put now offering online advice on their LinkedIn profile. Two days later, they've picked up a bunch of clients simply of on, on that basis. Yeah. So it's it, it's about choices. Now you've got four best-selling books to your name, I think it is, and you've got a new one out uh, uh, recently. We'll, we'll, we'll touch on that as well. But Key Person of Influence, um, I've got a copy of it myself, nice. um, is absolutely fantastic, and uh, there's some really great concepts in there. For those of you, for those who uh, who don't really know you or understand what that concept is, just kind of explain what that's about. So in my 20s, I spent a lot of time touring and working with uh, famous authors and speakers around the world. That was my business. Um, And people like Dragons from Dragon's Den and people who had New York Times bestselling books, um, you know, people who have sold more than a million copies of a book, those those sorts of people were my clients that I was working with and we were doing roadshows and and all of those sorts of things. And the, the thing that I witnessed night after night, day after day was just people thrusting opportunities at them. So um, I would, you know, we'd run a we'd run a conference and we'd have 700 people there. And at the end of the day, like the top speakers, they would have people who'd brought business plans for them. They would have people who'd brought product samples for them. They would just have just nonstop deals being thrust at them. On top of that, they'd have people coming up to them saying things like, oh, my family, we have a uh, investment arm to our our family office, and we'd love to place some funds with you. Um, we do angel investing. Would you? Do you need any angel investment funds for anything that you're doing? Like just, it's almost like they were the eye of the storm. And mm. I remember forming an opinion by before I was 30, because I wrote the book when I was 29. Um, I remember forming this opinion that if you're not a key person of influence in your industry, your full-time job should be to try and become one. Because once you achieve that, even just a basic status of that, uh, you you know the world really just opens up to you, and you go from chasing opportunities to curating opportunities. Um, the inbound opportunities just come in thick and fast, and um, and the money goes through the roof. So any financial planner would know that the top ten percent of people in the UK earn seventy two thousand pounds. The top five percent, I think, earn I forget the exact number, but it's like one hundred and ten. And then the top one percent, it goes up. Oh, actually, the top five percent, I think, is one hundred and sixty. And then the top one percent is three hundred and sixty. Right. And it's kind of like the the point of the story is that there's this big spike 
that happens at the top 5% of, of the population that is the unfair wealth inequality or income inequality that we all talk about. And if you're a financial planner, you know this. You know that there are some people who work so hard to make 40000 a year, and then there are some people who work like not even anywhere near as hard and they make 40,000 a month, Um, you know, and these are the key people of influence in their industry. These are the ones whose names come up in conversations. They're the ones who receive inbound deal opportunities. Um, They're the ones who are kind of like the connectors, the storytellers, the pitchers, Um, you know, they're the ones who, if they're involved in the deal, they mobilize things quickly. And if they're not involved in the deal, they don't. And sometimes it's only their name that needs to be involved in the deal. Um, So, if a financial planner has ever come across someone like that, and I'm sure they have, you know, that's that's the goal. The goal is to be like that as a financial planner. Um, so basically what we did is we said, all right, well, how do we orchestrate it? Um, and because I worked with these people for 10 years, I knew exactly how they orchestrated it. And it's not an accident. It's it's a deliberate set of steps that make them that influential. So I think there are five five steps in, in your process without, without going... No, without going deeply into them, um, p- pitching uh, themselves powerfully as as like telling their story, delivering their pitch really well. So all of these people are very, very good at delivering their pitch. Number two is published content. You'll be able to find the books that they've written. You'll be able to find the blogs, the articles, the white papers that they've authored, but they all author content. And the, the gold standard is a book, but you can start with blogs. You can start with articles. You can start with publishing podcasts or videos. So just publishing stuff, it's that breadcrumb of information that leads people to you. So, you know, in most cases, the people who showed up to the big conferences were people who had read the book. Um, So the book was the breadcrumb. You know, they might have read the book. They might have looked at the YouTube video. They might have listened to the podcast. Those little breadcrumbs lead towards actually doing something with the person. Um, The third one is products. So they don't sell their time. They sell a set of products and services, and they typically have a team of people who deliver the product and service. So their job is running around creating opportunities and they have a team of people who deliver the product and service um, around them. Uh, The the, uh, fourth one is profile and that's as simple as Googling well. If I Google your name, I need two pages of good stuff to come up. I need to see that you are who you say you are and it needs to be more than just your LinkedIn profile. I need to see that you're active in the community, that you're out there speaking on you know platforms that you're engaging with people that you're winning awards all of that is what we call profile um, and then uh, partnership is that you're not acting alone you're not a lone wolf if you look at all of the uh, key people of influence they um, for want of a bad analogy they hunt in packs yeah, um, yeah. so they all know each other and they all work together behind the scenes so in many cases today key people of influence form little WhatsApp groups with 12 or 15 people who are complementary people in their industries and they just have an ongoing conversation. So you imagine a financial planner who's in a WhatsApp group with an accountant, a lawyer, um, a business coach, and they're all in the in the group together updating each other with who they, you know, what they're doing and what they're up to and the opportunities they're flowing. And it's this secret little group that's going on behind the scenes. It makes it seem like wow, where's this guy getting all these opportunities? How did he get that speaking opportunity? How did he get to co-author that book? And it's like, well, behind the scenes, we're working in it as a team. We've formed a squad and uh, and we're travelling together as a squad. And and that's what the key people of influence do. They have that squad mentality versus the lone lone wolf mentality. 
yeah, yeah. And you are still running programs to help people develop their their profile in this way. Yeah, so we we run um, uh, accelerators for entrepreneurs. So for small businesses, typically between two hundred thousand of revenue to two million of revenue, um, we have the Key Person of Influence Accelerator. And for bigger businesses, FTSE 100 companies, we run internal accelerators. We've actually run accelerators for uh, one of the big FTSE 100 financial planning companies. Uh, We've worked with private equity firms. We've worked with um, uh, VC. So we do actually run kind of bespoke uh, accelerator programs for, you know, closed off groups as well. Right. Fantastic. Okay. Well, I'll put a link to to that because uh, I just I just get a feeling that more and more financial advisors are beginning to think in in this kind of way, where they start to see their role as less of just a job or something that, a job that they love. Let's <coughs> let's not deny that. But there are relative. I, I can count the number of influencers or key people of influence in the financial advice community really on on one hand to be quite honest there are one or two real obvious characters who are doing all that you're describing but the the, the benefits of going down this route are, are mm. huge aren't they well here's here's something to think about with humans if i said to you what is the most successful brand in the world when it comes to innovation and products and you know the most desirable brand what would you say would be that brand probably apple yeah, exactly, right? And you think to yourself, Apple is such a powerful brand. If you stick that Apple logo on there, then it's going to sell millions of units. And Apple's a trusted brand and Apple is a desirable brand. And, um, uh, you know, Apple is an extremely valuable brand and it basically it, it, it represents products, products that people buy. Yeah. But here's something interesting. Uh, Apple has 6 million followers on Twitter Tim Cook, who's an introvert, who's not a particularly great um, public speaker, do you think Tim Cook has more or less followers than Apple? My gut would would say less, but I suspect he's got twelve point five million. So he's got more than double the followers of Apple. Right, and that should tell you something. Mm. People, in theory, people love products and brands. But in truth, people connect with people first. The reason we love Apple is because of how we originally felt about Steve Jobs. Mm. And now we look to Tim Cook as the torchbearer of that brand. And the truth is if you take Tim Cook away, suddenly some of the top talented people fall away. Suddenly some of the relationships start to fall away. Suddenly Mm. some of the trust starts to diminish. And then it's not, I mean, it's certainly not going to be immediate, but suddenly over, you know, Piece by piece, little pieces, it erodes the actual brand, um, and you know that's that's essentially the yeah. you know the way humans work. Um, so Elon Musk has forty four million followers. Tesla's only got six million followers. Um, Jessica Alba has nineteen million on on Instagram, and her brand, which is worth a billion, has got uh, a million followers. So she's nineteen times more powerful. Richard Branson has been talking about Virgin for fifty years. Virgin's got about 400,000 followers. Branson's got 13 million followers. So basically people couldn't care less about Virgin. They care about Branson. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's that that we, you know, a lot of people love the idea of hiding behind JP Morgan or hiding behind, <laughs> you know, a big, big name brand. Truth is people buy from people. People yeah, love yeah. people. People connect with people. You can't shake the brand's hand. Yeah, yeah. So and that naturally takes us on that, 
um, if you become a key person of influence, you can then become oversubscribed, uh, which is the title of uh, one of the other books that you've written. I just want to read something that I, that I picked off the cover or somewhere. It says, in any given industry, some people struggle to get customers while others have more than they can handle. Similarly, in any given market, some companies chase for clients while others select who they want to work with and turn away the rest. Um, that That's a uh, such an obvious concept, but it's becoming more and more important, isn't it? <laughs> it's a, it's everything. Yeah. You know, it really is. Here's, here's the thing. On day one of an economics course, we learn demand and supply sets the price. Mm-hmm. We learn that anything that is in short supply and highly demanded, the price goes up and profitability comes in. Yeah. Now, there's no fairness to this. It's a, It's completely unfair. It's completely arbitrary. It's just if demand sets the demand outstripping supply sets the price, it doesn't really matter whether you're a nurse, right, who should get paid a lot more. Um, you know, the, the only reason nurses are going to get a pay rise is because there's not enough of them and we need to attract more into the industry, so to yeah. speak. Mm. But if there's plenty of supply, then the price stays low if people are willing to do the job at, at that. So it's not fair. Um, an airline... I believe an airline should be fairly profitable, right? Because it's such a big, complex business. It's so capital intensive, so risky, so much stress and so much pressure and everything has to happen to the millisecond or else you get fines and all this sort of Mm -hmm. stuff. So I would say that airlines should be wildly profitable because if profit was handed out fairly, then you would say that airlines are certainly, you know, deserving because of how much effort they, they have to put in just to exist. Yeah. But most airlines have been making 3%, 4% profit for decades. And really it's down to the fact that it achieved equilibrium decades ago and that the, the heyday of, of airline travel where there weren't mm-hmm. enough airlines and there were so many people who wanted to travel was decades and decades ago. That was the last time they were highly profitable. Yeah. The airlines have improved every aspect but they're not profitable. Yeah. I'll give you an unfair example. There's there's a little watch brand called Rolex that make a product that can be easily copied for under 200 pounds and you can hardly even tell that it's a copy, even if you're a mm. professional. Um, and it's a ridiculous device that nobody needs because everyone has a phone that tells them the time and the date for free. And yet they sell these damn things for 10,000 pounds. They're hugely profitable. But the one thing that Rolex is absolutely masterful at is that they keep the demand high and the supply low. So it's hard to get a real Rolex. You have to go on a waiting list. If you want a Submariner, you're going to be on a 6 to 12 months to 24-month waiting list, and that's that's just it, right? And if you want to buy a fake, go buy a fake. Yeah. Uh, but people don't want a fake Rolex. They want to have a real Rolex, so they go on the waiting list. So demand and supply always sets the price. Now, everything else is just noise. It doesn't matter how likable you are, how nice you are, how much customer service you give and all of those sorts of things. If demand doesn't outstrip supply, you are toast as far as making profit. Yeah, yeah. So that, to, to me, I, the concept of being able to pick and choose the clients you want to work with, and particularly for smaller businesses, um, and, that you know, there's plenty of, uh, of one-person, one-man band financial planning businesses all around the UK, and a really big issue uh, is the question of lead generation, um, but not just any lead generation. You know, you could shovel leads into any business, 
just by using Facebook ads. But most financial planners, you know, they want quality. They want them perhaps in a certain type of niche or a market, a certain amount of assets available. Um, so picking and choosing has never really been an easy job. And, and what they've tended to rely on is referrals. I think we've reached a point where we've become grossly over-reliant on referrals, which I think is a, is a dangerous thing. And on the other side of the coin, there are sort of directories and lead generation firms as well. And, you know, and the sort of leads you get from those firms fall in two camps. You either love them or you hate them. So the ability to be able to pick and choose who you want to actually work with is so, so important as a financial planner, particularly if you want the quality. Then along comes this thing called a scorecard which I had never really called it a, a scorecard before. And for the benefit of people watching this, I just want to share a, a, a quick slide from a presentation that, um, that I've been giving. For financial advisors that know me, um, I used to be a, a, a rep, basically, for an insurance company, and I used to call on financial advisors. I used to see 20 a week for something like 20 years. But the most successful financial advisors, even in the 70s and the 80s, were the ones that collected data. Um, and there was one financial advisor in the southwest of London who used to do little worksite presentations, little seminars. But what he did differently from everybody else was that he'd give everybody a little postcard, um, everybody in the audience, and five simple questions. Do you save regularly? How often do you worry about money? Are you likely to receive an inheritance? Who's the main breadwinner? And how much would your family have if you or your spouse died today? And they'd put their name on it, and he'd take it away, and he would then send a personalized follow-up based on um, – the answers to the question. Now, then along comes Daniel Priestley. Uh, what, beginning of 2019? 2020. Yeah, something like that. Now, just explain how you came about and why you use this concept of collecting data to choose the people you want to work with. Well, almost a decade ago, one of our speakers was doing a personality profile test and there were eight personality profiles that you could come out as. You answered a series of 20 questions and then it gave you a, you know, which, which Disney princess are you, which, yeah. <laughs> which, yeah. person, which profile are you, right? Um, we've all done these, ENTPs yeah. and SJLMVs and all this oh, kind yeah. of stuff, right, uh, DISCs. So we've all done these before. So he, he had one of these that he had invented and what was amazing is that we had this huge database of people who had, uh, had filled it in. And very, very quickly, we cottoned on to the fact that we could send people emails based upon their type. So if you were the extrovert type, we would invite you to networking. If you were the introvert type, there was almost no point inviting you to networking. We'd invite you to download our research paper mm. and we would get better result, better responses if we treated people more individually than if we just sent the same thing to everyone. So we kind of started leveraging this database um, and thought this was just a great idea. Uh, later on, fast forward five years, I wrote the book Key Person of Influence and I thought to myself, oh, you know what? I'll put one of those scorecards in my book. And I spent £10,000 with an IT company building a key person of influence scorecard where people answer 40 questions and then they get a report. And then once they get the report, we send out emails based on how they scored. Yep. And I did this for five years and generated 75,000 leads and 10 million pounds worth of sales off of it. And we could just 
immediately not follow up with 15% of people because we knew that their score was too low. We could immediately not follow up with the other 15% of people because we knew their score was too high. And then we could go straight to that Goldilocks zone where we know we can help you. You're not too hot. You're not too cold. You're just right. We can help you. Um, And this was just a game changer. It was actually one of the keys to scaling our business globally. And it was one of the key assets for us opening up eight eight offices around the world and being able to control and manage those eight offices and be able to see the flow of data and see the impact that we were having um, from a distance. And this was great. And then (laughs) because we have clients all over the world, they all start asking, who made your scorecard? And I thought to myself, well, actually, we better start selling these things because so many people want them. So we did a deal to start building a few. We built about 25 and charged eight grand for for each of them. And then I get chatting with the guys who are doing this and I say, we could build a platform around this. We could make a SaaS platform, make it 30 pounds a month. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and they're like, yeah, of course we could. So we just said, let's let's just make it super easy to set up scorecards. And um, now we've got 500. We've only just launched. We've got 500 clients who are who are now doing scorecards. And it's just awesome to watch. We have health and fitness scorecards. We have marathon running scorecards. We have, um, you know, are you ready to be a dog owner scorecards. We have... Um, we have golfing related scorecards. We have financial services related scorecards, business marketing, yeah. finance, hiring new employees. We've got all, just hundreds of variations of these scorecards. And across all these different industries, it's working like a charm where people are filling in the scorecard and then the business follows up, talks to the right people about the issues that matter to them, and they're getting much better conversions on sales much faster than they've ever done it before. I, I have been absolutely blown away by it. Um, I was always the seminar guy. Um, I wrote a book years ago on how to put on seminars. And the beauty of seminars was that you got a room full of people. Mm. You've got a room full of data for, a, for a want of another expression. And it, it then depends on how you use that data. And I got looking at finance. I did some work in some financial advisors' websites back end of 2019 we looked at 100 financial advisors websites um and the the numbers were really quite shocking the bounce rates were ridiculously high so uh, the average bounce rate was 50 something percent so they were losing half their visitors straight away of those that stuck around did not go on to make inquiries for the most part and if they did it was like one percent something like that and I, I was looking, I wonder, I'm thinking, why was this? And there are a variety of different reasons. And one of the reasons is there's just way too much information on the home pages alone. Um, and that's a natural thing to do. Just do you remember the early days we called it making a website sticky? You needed to hold people on. The way you did that was you just chucked as much content on as you possibly could. Well, the websites today look great, but they're still that's got way too much information. And they're not encouraging people to engage further. And the scorecard seems to work really well on the basis that, you know, people uh, like to benchmark themselves against something. Mm. Um, how fit are you compared with somebody else of the same age? That 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 kind of stuff. Oh, totally. And Do then you once remember, you've got like, score- in, in magazines, all sorts of men's health magazines and, um, you know, Cosmopolitan magazines, they've got those one-page scorecards. Give yourself one point for every for every statement you answer yes to. Yeah. And you pull out your pen and you go, oh, you know, tick, you know, have you ever thought this? Tick, have you ever been frustrated with this? Tick, 
you go through and you go, oh, well, okay, tally it all up and you're like, okay, I scored a 23 and it says if you scored under 17, you're a terrible person and if you scored <laughs> above a 31, you're the world's best person ever and somewhere in the mm. middle you're somewhere and you kind of like you go through and you do it. They suck you in. They just draw you in. You, you As soon as you see them, you almost feel that you can't turn the page without ticking the boxes and finding out how you scored. Yeah, absolutely. And then people want to, once they've got their score, they want to aspire to do better with whose help? Oh, the person who's been yeah. running this running this scorecard. And, I mean, it fulfills um, so many different aspects of marketing and lead generation. To me, it has been the single, other than seminars, the single best lead generation tool I've ever done. So, yeah. what, for example, one example where I've been hired to do a, a, a marketing webinar uh, we're talking about LinkedIn or something like that. And at the end, I say to everybody, hey, you can go and check out, get a score on how well you're using LinkedIn. Personalized score, personalized tips for improvement. Uh, just follow this link, go take the scorecard, and I'll give you a freebie just for, just for doing it. So I say bye-bye at the end of the webinar. Go and make a cup of coffee. Come back in. Last time I did that, there were 97 leads sitting in my inbox. Amazing. All came in within 10 minutes. But here's the thing is the pick and choose thing. I've yeah. suddenly become oversubscribed. I've got more than I can possibly deal with. I can stick them all on my email newsletter list or my webinar list, yeah. but I can now go through them and I can say, I can literally pick and choose the people I want to work with. And as you said, there's a Goldilocks zone right in the middle um, but there's also, I discovered another, the people who do really well on the scorecard, they're the people who I think are actually quite competitive and they want to get even higher and yeah. they will pay more yeah. uh, for this. So I thought this could really work well with financial advisors. Yeah, it, it totally. And that's and it, it kind of points you towards creating different product categories as well. So one thing that came out of our scorecards is that we we found there was a lot of people who scored low that we wouldn't call back. And then we thought to ourselves, why don't we just create a product that's for beginners? And we'll just have a beginner's product. So we created a beginner's product. And then also, there, you know, there's one of our questions, which is, does your business uh, turn over, have revenue of more than $2 million per year? And everyone who clicked that, our, our internal team knew that they're just not right for our accelerator programs mm -hmm. because typically they've got 30-plus employees or they've, you know, they can't get the time off. Like, you know, they've... Their, their business is one of those businesses that you have to kind of turn the ship around a bit more slowly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, we said, oh, well, maybe we should have a consulting coaching offering where we take what we do into their business. And sure enough, that sold beautifully. So it gave us, gave us product ideas uh, as well. Um, you know, I will, I will say when, when the world goes back to doing some seminars, some live seminars, one of the things that um, some of our people have been doing in other parts of the world is that they'll deliver a workshop, they stand up on stage, they deliver their first five minutes, a bit about themselves, a bit of rapport building, maybe a couple of jokes, and then they say, all right, we're going to get into the content, uh, we're going to cover these key topics. Before I start, I've got a 10-question survey that I want you to fill in so that you can be listening for the things that are most relevant to yeah. you. And they say, pull out your phone, go to this link, Answer the 10 questions and you'll get a, uh, a category scorecard for, for three things, right? So it'll just be a nice quick quick scorecard or it might be a 12-question scorecard. Um, and then the level of engagement in the workshop goes up and the level of follow-through goes goes through the roof. Yeah, like, yeah. It, And you can kind of do it right there at that beginning point 
and you capture everyone because in a live event, if everyone stops and pulls out their phone, you don't want to be the person who doesn't, so you just pull out your phone yeah, and do, yeah. it, do it too. Yeah, and again, there are so many other benefits of this. What I've also found is the ability to, to customise how you follow up a lead. You know, if you're a financial advisor and you get a lead from a lead generation site, at best you've got a name, you might get a salary, and you might get something that says this person wants to know a bit more about pensions. That's it. Um, but you can now go to a meeting pre-prepared uh, with your head in the, exactly the right place. But there was also something else I've discovered as well is that you could also use this with clients on an ongoing basis, year after year. and Demonstrate your value. Them. Demonstrate what you're doing for them. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. I've been blown away. I'm building these things for advisors now. I've got about a dozen on the go at different stages, and um, uh, it, it is absolutely fantastic and fulfills so many. It's not just lead generation. Yeah. It's all about quality. Um, and we go back to what we're saying about, about being oversubscribed. And also, it, just even having a scorecard is a bit like it positions you as a key person of influence in some respects because it's like it, uh, if you've written a book, you're that it's, person. It's a piece of thought leadership. It really is. Yeah, you know, the creation, right. the creation of a scorecard is a bit of thought leadership. The other thing that is a big red flag for me that, that makes me worry is anyone who's not in control of their own lead generation. So, for example, if you are reliant on referrals, uh, or if you're reliant on a lead generation agency, you are seriously reliant on some external party for the ability to get um, to get leads through the door. Yeah, you know, yeah. That, that's not mm. a position you really want to be in. Even referrals. I mean, referrals are great, but my personal belief about referrals is referrals should be the really great cream on top that um, that your business uh, enjoys when it comes through, and that your business thrives on those. But ultimately, you know, underneath referrals needs to be that steady stream of inbound leads that you're in control. You can turn it on, you can turn it off, you can turn it up. Uh, you know, you, you have got a way of generating leads that you're in control of. I mean, it would, just be, it would just be horrendous if, you know, if every time you wanted to enter your house, you had to go next door and knock on the neighbor's door and see if they'll give you the keys to your own house to let you in. You know, and that's kind of what it's like if you if you have someone else who's generating the leads for you. Someone else is giving you permission or letting you letting you get into your own business. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if they decide to stop, then you're in real trouble. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, this has been great, Dale. Um, just starting to wrap up then. Um, and I know you work with some big financial planning firms. From your position now. Give us one bit of advice that you think the financial planning world needs to be taking on board moving forward. Look, it's not great. It's not pretty. Um, I think the financial planning advice is at the very beginning of major disruption. Um, I think that uh, like, like, many, um, like many industries, there's more technology coming in and providing solutions. And customers are enjoying and trusting technology more and more every single day. Um, and what's also happening is there's the key person of influence strategy that's emerging where you actually get these people who expand their brand and their reach. They have best-selling books out there. They've got scorecards. They've got videos. They've got all of this. And that gives them the capacity to build relationship and trust with a wider marketplace and basically capture more and more marketplace. 
It used to be that a financial planning business relied upon being a local financial planner. So there's kind of this thing about like, oh, okay, well, I live in Litchfield, so I better go and get a Litchfield financial planner, of course, right? I want to be able to go and wander down to the high street and or I want my financial planner to come around to the house and we'll have a cup of tea and discuss things. But that's less and less now. There's really no reason why that person living in Litchfield can't have the financial planner who specialises. Let's say that person living in Litchfield is a partner at, uh, at a uh, law firm and there's a law firm partner specialist who's based in Bristol but who runs regular Zooms and ha- who's got a book out and who's got reports and who talks about all the special interests of that group, you know, that's where the world is moving. The world's moving towards special groups called niches yeah. that, are, that are defined by not geography but defined by interest groups. So I, I'm more likely, me personally, I'm more likely to sign up to a financial planner who specialises in entrepreneurs as opposed to a financial planner who's in Putney. Yeah. yeah. You know, so good way, good way of putting it. Yeah. These, these are these are the key issues that are um that are emerging. And uh, and financial planners, it it's a it's a wonderful business. It's a growing business. It's a it's also it's a there's never been more need for financial planning because there's never been more uncertainty and perceived risk. Um, and there's never been more bright shiny objects that you need to discuss with someone. Um, so for all those reasons, it's a great time, but also it's a disruptive time. Yeah, fabulous. Thank you. So we better finish with the the classic podcast thing. Um, give us a book that you're reading at the moment, or that you think people ought to be reading. Look, here's a, here's a book that I I'm going to throw a book in there that you're not going to expect. Okay. There's a book I've been reading called um, uh, called Client Earth, and it's a story about a law firm that was set up to protect the environment, and they gather evidence and prosecute claims against people or organizations or big big companies, big governments that pollute and that um, break the law when it comes to environmental impact. And um, and this particular law firm, I mean, the, the stuff that they come across will blow your mind. You would not believe what goes on in the world. You know, a, a normal, sane, rational person would not believe that this stuff happens. And the book reads like a John Grisham novel. And, you, you, you know, there's nail-biting scenes in the book where they're going to literally destroy a 10,000-year-old forest just to make some paper mills, you know, to get create some pay, short-term paper mill jobs, and they're going to sell it at a discount, like like crazy stuff that you think that could never happen. And it's like these guys have to like get the lawsuit done, or else that ten thousand year old forest is toast. Um, and it's a great book, and it mm-hmm. gives you hope for humanity because you see the law in a very different way. You see that we live we interact and we live on a framework of laws and you kind of get that at a deeper level and you realise that there are these superheroes hiding amongst us who who are doing great things on the planet. So that's a wonderful book I've just recently read and I would encourage anyone to, to read that book if they care about nature and the environment. Perfect. That's a great place to great place to end. Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Um, some fascinating stuff. Uh, if people want to come into to your world, uh, KPI or something like that, uh, what's they should the best try place my to... my key person of influence scorecard. Of course, of course. Uh, so scorecard dot keypersonofinfluence.com um, will take you to the original scorecard that I created uh, where all of this began. So that would be a great place uh, to to check it out. 
and then you know check out scoreapp.com uh there's some there's some versions there but try our scorecard right see whether you can be a key person of influence but be warned you're going to get a phone call from our team <laughs> who who uh, who have got things to say based upon how you scored. Yeah. So uh, you'll enjoy the whole the whole process. Fantastic, Daniel. Thanks so much. Great to see you. Yeah, uh, look see after you, yourself, you and your family. And uh, I think last time we caught up was in some coffee bar in Charing Cross quite a few years ago. But we'll do that again sometime. That, it was Adam Street, if I remember correctly, was it? Okay. under underneath the underneath oh, the road, just yeah. up from just up from. Charing Cross. Yeah, does that place exist anymore? Goodness. No, it's a. It's unfortunately it's gone from being a really cool little members club to a really dull uh, events based for hire. Oh, uh, right. Okay. There you go. Maybe we'll turn it around one day. Good idea. Thanks, Daniel. Club. Great to see you. Cheers. Take care. Bye.